Welcome to episode 88 of the Historic Performance Podcast featuring Adam Matusi, strength and conditioning coach at the Royal Ballet Company and Royal Ballet School. Before we get on with today's show, I've got a quick favor to ask. As you may know, the Historic Performance Podcast is hosted and produced by myself. In an effort to include show transcripts for all episodes, I have set up a Patreon account. If the show has added value to your daily commute or life, then kindly click on the support me on Patreon button in the show notes of the latest episode found on my website, historicperformance.net. All donations will be greatly appreciated. Thank you in advance. The evolution of human performance science has led to the expansion of high performance roles throughout the world. Positions have opened up in less traditional areas of athletics and performance dance. One such role is that of strength and conditioning coach at the Royal Ballet Company and school. You might be wondering, what is the role of the strength and conditioning coach in performance dance? I'll typically have several one-to-one sessions across the day with dancers, which is typically either performance slash prehab based sessions or longer term rehab based sessions and then any free time within my schedule is usually spent writing programs or or working on other elements related to sports science and dance so you know an example of this could be improving our data management tool smarter basing it things like the the visualization of data that we're collecting that my friends is adam matusi comes on today's podcast to discuss common injuries seen in performance dance, the use of blood flow restriction during early stage rehabilitation, and how to utilize traditional strength and conditioning periodization within ballet. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Story Performance Podcast. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Adam Machusi. Adam, how are you? I'm good, thanks, James. How are you? It's a first for the podcast because I've never had someone involved with strength and conditioning in ballet but that's why i'm looking forward to some of the insight and about what's going on at the royal ballet company and school but before we get to that could you tell us a little bit about yourself and also what you currently do absolutely so um uh, i guess i'll start with um with my background so when i was younger i wasn't really that interested in in formal sport so spent most of my time skateboarding or mountain biking or or, or trying to do parkour and and run across buildings. It it wasn't until secondary school where I started to become more interested in formal sports like basketball or rugby, sprinting um, and and cycling as well. I I didn't really have an insight into the academic side of this either. So it, it wasn't actually until I failed one of my courses at secondary school that I that I decided to take on physical education for one year. This is this was really my first exposure to the academic side of things. And and I really enjoyed the anatomy and physiology side of it and I was quite passionate about it and and this is when I made the decision to complete some additional short courses to to get a better understanding. So I went on and I did um I think I did a course in in fitness instructing, circuit instructing, personal training, sports massage therapy, and and there was even one in strength and conditioning at the end of that as well. It was while I was on these short courses, I was recommended the undergraduate degree program in strength and conditioning science at St. Mary's University, uh, as it was supposed to be one of the best in the country. And I immediately knew that this was something that I wanted to do 
uh, and I applied to the university. I, I didn't even apply anywhere else, any other university, which in hindsight probably wasn't the best idea. But but fortunately, I was accepted into the program. So so when I actually started, I, I recall one of the first modules being um, it was a hundred percent practical, uh, and it was it was actually assessed by a, a weightlifting competition at the end of the three month module. And and the university's philosophy on this was, you know, if you're if you're going to coach these techniques and, and training modalities, then it's it's really important that you had a good understanding of them. And it was during this period that I absolutely fell in love with weightlifting. And I continued to lift throughout my degree program. Uh, and I was fortunate enough, actually, to make it into the GB squad by the end of it. And, and this definitely led to lots of coaching opportunities. And I was, I was coaching uh, youth recreational athletes, um, all the way up to, to national level weightlifters. And then being in the program, I also had a lot of exposure to, to powerlifting and, and the Paralympic powerlifting side of things, which was really cool. But, but when I was studying, I, you know, I tried to complete as many internships as possible. So this included, you know, a lot of the university teams. So uh, I did some S&C with the, the women's rugby union team, the men's rugby league team, the men's rowing team. I also interned at London Welsh Rugby Union Club, uh, which was a premiership rugby team at the time. And then, and then basically just took on as many ad hoc S&C roles that I could along the way. I remember I completed my UKCA accreditation in my first year of uni because, you know, I thought this was really important to just get done as soon as possible. And, and then I went to as many conferences as I could as well. This actually ended up being very few as I spent all of my money going to this international conference on strength training that was in Slovakia in my first year. So the majority of the conferences I went to after this were were generally local student-based conferences that, that were a little bit more cost effective. One, once I actually completed my undergraduate degree, I applied for a graduate assistant position at St. Mary's. This actually included a master's as well. And, and the master's I picked was in sports rehabilitation because I thought, you know, this might be a nice adjunct to my strength and conditioning qualification. And the position I held was essentially delivering lectures to the current undergraduate sports science and strength and conditioning science student whilst also completing my master's. Following this graduate assistant position and the completion of my master's, I was looking for a job and I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. I could have continued down the route of academia and, and stayed lecturing or, you know, I could have moved out and been more hands-on and, and done more coaching. And, and I was quite open to both. So I was kind of checking out the landscape and and seeing what was around and, and what was available. And it was at this point that I sort of stumbled across the position with the Royal Ballet Company. And it was actually a friend of mine who had shared the link on, on Facebook. And that's how I found it. So, so I applied for this out of interest. And, and I was successful with it, which was great. So originally, I was full-time with the Royal Ballet Company, and this lasted one year. So that was from the 2015-2016 season. And then in August of last year, my position changed. So now my role is split 50-50 between the Royal Ballet Company and the Royal Ballet School. But luckily, the buildings are right next to each other, so it's not too much running about. But essentially, I'm delivering strength and conditioning now to the dancers, but I'm also heavily involved with the rehab process. Adam, the majority of listeners are really found throughout the world. Many have probably heard of the prestigious Royal Ballet Company, but could you give us an overview of the Royal Ballet Company and the school? Yeah, absolutely. So 
I guess I'm quite fortunate because I work at the two institutes. I get to be part of two healthcare teams. These are both aiming to drive a multidisciplinary approach to dancer well-being, which is still quite novel in the world of dance and performing arts. Still relatively early days when when you look at comparing it to sport. But the Royal Ballet Company is made up of our clinical director, Greg Retter. We also have three physios, one post of which is split between two individuals. We have two full-time SNC coaches, which is made up of three staff. With one is full time and the other is split between myself and a 0.5 masters of research student. We have two ballet coaches which cross over with the healthcare suite and, and they really help to facilitate the rehab process and getting dancers fully back. We also have two Pilates and gyrotonics instructors, a doctor that comes in weekly, nutritionist, a psychologist and three sports massage therapists. We have a slightly smaller team at the school. This is made up of our clinical manager, Fiona Sweeney. Um, We have one full-time physio, a doctor who comes in bi-weekly, a 0.5 sports scientist, which is myself, two Pilates and fitness instructors, a nutritionist and a psychologist. Adam, that seems like quite a robust healthcare suite. When it comes to the Royal Ballet Company has approximately how many dancers? And what is the ranking structure like? Our, uh, the Royal Ballet Company has roughly 100 dancers. It's a huge company. And, and the ranking structure is made up as follows. So as you come in, you would be an artist. You then have the first artists. Followed by this, you have the soloists, the first soloists, and the principals. So just to give you a bit of an insight, the, the artists and the first artists will typically cover the corps de ballet, which is the supporting dancers and the backing dancers in a ballet. The soloists and the first soloists will cover the supporting solos within a ballet. And then finally, you have the principals who will have the main roles in a ballet. As for the Royal Ballet School, typically how many dancers are there and what is the age range? And is the purpose of the school to later act as a feeder into the Royal Ballet Company? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the the Royal Ballet School is actually split up into two. So you have the lower school and the upper school. And and I'm based at the upper school. So it's made up of, of three years with roughly 85 students in total. And the age ranges are between 15 and 19 years old. Just to give you an idea of the structure, that the the first and second year students study an academic qualification for two hours a day, and they focus the rest of their time on on technical training, which includes classes such as classical ballet, pas de deux, which is partnering, repertoire, which is specific repertoire of ballets, variations, which is solos, contemporary uh, dance, and then character as well, which is more the stagecraft and and acting side of things. Whereas the third year students don't have academics, they just focus purely on technical training whilst auditioning for job. The, the, The school absolutely acts as a feeder. So each year, there'll be a number of the the students will typically get jobs at the company. So the way this works, actually, it it changes the structure slightly that I alluded to before. So I said that you'll typically come in as a as an artist, but actually, if you're coming from the school, you can you can get an apprenticeship, and this would be called an Orb Jebson Young Dancer. So it'd be a one year apprenticeship, and then if they like you, they can um, offer you a contract, and and then you would be 
an artist. However, some some students who are who are particularly talented might bypass this system and be offered a contract immediately. Currently, you're splitting your time between the Royal Ballet Company and the Royal Ballet School. So could you give us some insight as to what your day to day looks like and some of your responsibilities as a strength and conditioning coach for both? Yeah, absolutely. My my position is obviously split. So on a Monday and Friday morning, I'm at the company and then all day Tuesday, Thursday. And then on a Monday and Friday afternoon, evening, and all day Wednesday, I am at the school. With respect to the company, my day usually begins around 10 a.m. And we actually provide a sign-up sheet to allow dancers to book appointments based on their own personal schedules. So this is because the times aren't always appropriate, which results in, in many dancers that if they can't book in with us, then they'll, they'll conduct their sessions independently. But I'll, I'll typically have several one-to-one sessions across the day with dancers, which is typically either performance slash prehab-based sessions or longer-term rehab-based sessions. And then any free time within my schedule is usually spent writing programs or, or working on other elements related to sports science and dance. So you know, an example of this could be improving our data management tool, smarter basing it things like the the visualization of data that we're collecting. And then in terms of the, the Royal Ballet School, I've only been in post since August, so it's still very early days. The main focus of my post was to, to facilitate the rehab of injured students. This was typically done via one-to-one sessions with longer-term rehabs that require a thorough plan to enable a safe return to dance. However, we also have set up group rehab sessions for each year, which is essentially an opportunity to have some contact time with students that have low severity injuries, but could benefit from some general strengthening. So this this is made up of a, a three-tier system for early, mid, and late-stage rehabs. And is it's a really highly variable program due to the low training age of the, of the dance students. So just to give you an insight, the early group will generally be higher volume, but very much movement-focused around movement literacy, looking at squat techniques, hip hinging, unilateral work, bracing, anti-extension, anti-rotation, that sort of thing, general movement competencies. The the mid-group will have a reduced volume, but start to add external load on the aforementioned movement patterns. And then finally, the late group will continue loading, but will be reintroduced to to impact, looking at landing mechanics, movement control, and, and stiffness properties. Naturally, this is a general framework, but it is highly adaptable and and is adapted where required any additional time outside of this is typically spent programming for the longer term rehabs or again working on any other elements related to sports science so so one of the things we did recently was met with uh, the academic staff who are currently putting together a new degree program for the upper school and we had a meeting with them to discuss having our wellness form built into the degree program just to facilitate the compliance of filling it out. The element might be just looking at tracking the ballet timing, sorry, the, the, the ballet contact hours across all the different classes week to week to get a better understanding of how the academic year looks in terms of time spent in each class. Adam, I know that we chatted about two weeks ago and uh, you were telling me about the day in a life of a soloist and I was actually quite astonished by how long it is but before we get to that can you just give us an overview of the royal ballet company season so that we can get a a sense of 
how long these individuals are performing throughout the year? Yeah, absolutely. The Royal Ballet Company season begins in mid-August and ends in early June before they go on tour for four weeks. The dancers have one week off throughout this period at the end of January, and this is known as the mid-season break. Over the season, they have roughly 150 shows, which aren't evenly distributed. So this can mean that some weeks they have one show, whereas other weeks they can have up to eight. You know, this is really, really variable from week to week. And then within this season, they can have up to 11 different ballets that are completely different and will overlap in the scheduling. So there can be a classical ballet such as The Sleeping Beauty running at the same time as a brand new contemporary ballet, whilst simultaneously rehearsing another ballet that's due to come on soon. Only does this add to the workload overall, but it will also have very different demands due to the different choreography. And what I mean by this, because I don't think it's intuitive, is in a classical ballet, it might be longer in duration. So The Sleeping Beauty is, <laughs> is it's a really long ballet. It's actually got four acts. It's one of the longest ones out there. But it will also likely require more jumping Whereas a contemporary ballet, because the choreography is slightly different, it might require more lifting from the men. It might require slightly deeper squat type patterns and more floor based work, which um, could be a, a little bit different as well as demanding a lot more from in terms of range of motion as well, because they'll go through great ranges of motion as they run through different positions compared to classical ballet anyway. And, and just to give you an insight, a show can be made up of three at and uh, roughly uh, three hours long per show. Adam, in terms of uh, strength and conditioning at the Royal Ballet Company, uh, it isn't compulsory. And I know from our chats that the day for a dancer can be extremely long. So could you give us some insight into the day in the life of a soloist at the Royal Ballet Company? So a soloist is right in the middle in terms of the ranking between artist and principal? Absolutely. So all of the dancers have a challenging schedule and, and it's highly variable depending on, on the rank and the casting as well. Soloist position is, is one example as these dancers may still have to cover some of the corps de ballet work. They've been recently promoted on top of the solos that, that are expected of them. But if they're a fantastic dancer, that they may also be given opportunities to cover principal roles as well. So you then have this situation where this, this one dancer is covering the full spectrum of roles across probably multiple ballets as well, which, which makes it very difficult. So outside of the show schedule, you can then look at the, the rehearsal schedule, um, which is a little bit more difficult because this is done on a week by week basis. So, so this example is, a, is of a particularly heavy day of, of, of a soloist who, who was in this position. He would arrive at the opera house at around 10 a.m. and might spend that first half an hour going through some individualized warm up elements specific to him. And then following this, he would have class, which is a technical training session, but in ballet, it's considered your classical warm up. So this starts at 10.30 and, and lasts roughly an hour and 15 minutes. Following this, he had a solo rehearsal from The Sleeping Beauty, which lasted roughly an hour. Then he had a principal rehearsal from The Sleeping Beauty, which lasted roughly an hour. Following this, he had a corps de ballet rehearsal for a brand new contemporary ballet, which lasted roughly three hours. And then just to top it all off, 
he had to finish with a show of the Sleeping Beauty, which lasted roughly three hours. So so he would be coming in at 10 a.m., but by the time the show was over, it would be, you know, around 10.30 p.m. So you can imagine within this, it's it's really difficult to find time to to eat properly, to recover between sessions, let alone engage in, in strength and conditioning. And, and additionally, it's, it's worth noting that this training comes with a huge volume of jumping. So in class, so that their technical training session or, or their classical warm-up, there can be an advance of 200 jump contacts, which can be seen. And, and 50% of these, or more than 50%, can be unilateral in nature. Um, and, and we actually calculated the number of jumps in, in the solo that I mentioned from the Sleeping Beauty. And there's almost 100 in roughly a five-minute period. And you can imagine if you're running this multiple times, that number's only going to increase. So if you look across each of these different sessions, it's very easy to see how these jump contacts can start to add up over the course of a day. And in some cases, dancers can complete over a thousand jumps in one day. This is a huge demand on the body and, and definitely something that we need to consider as S&C coaches. And, and not only this, it's, it's not like these jumps are being performed in parallel. These jumps are all being performed in, in an extremely externally rotated position um, which is one of the characteristics of ballet. That is an absolutely insane amount of <laughs> jump contact. You deal with the rehabilitation side on both aspects, but primarily with the Royal Ballet School. When it comes to dancers, what are the most common injuries that you see both across the spectrum between the company and school? Yep, so so this is a pretty easy one. The, the majority of our time loss injuries are osteogenic in nature. And as you can imagine, they're typically found around the foot and ankle. Um, very often overuse injuries. And an example of this could be you know, something like a, a medial tibial stress response. However, we do see some acute injuries as well. So you do obviously see some uh, some acute fractures around the metatarsals. Uh, and, and this is one of the reasons why I'm, I'm such a huge advocate of, um, of strength training for, for ballet dancers, because I think if we can improve the robustness of these dancers, improve bone mineral density of these dancers, then you know, they're better equipped to deal with uh, this jump volume. It's, it's just about, you know, how, how we go about doing that in within their schedules. One thing that you've definitely been using during early stage rehabilitation is blood flow restriction or BFR. Could you give us an example of when you have utilized blood flow restriction during early stage rehabilitation, what the protocol looked like? and why you're a fan of it. Absolutely. I actually first came across blood flow restriction while I was at St. Mary's University, uh, as there's a research group there led by Stephen Patterson. Blood flow restriction is a fantastic early stage rehab modality and is appropriate during those partial and non-weight-bearing phases of a rehab. The general idea behind it is just to offset any potential atrophy during this period and essentially to accelerate the return to sport or dance. So by utilizing the occlusion, you can use minimal loading to protect the injured site and still drive an adaptation. This is via an increase in metabolites and hypoxia, via reduced venous return, that leads to an increase in anabolic signaling and muscle fiber recruitment. There are a few different protocols, but the most common you'll probably see is, is an active anaerobic protocol, which requires an occlusion of roughly 180 millimeters of mercury, uh, but can change depending on the limb circumference. And the repetition scheme is 30, 15, 15, 15 
each of these followed by a minute rest with occlusion maintained throughout. An example of when we used this modality was following a fascia cruris tear, and our protocol required complete immobilization of the distal extremity in an air cast boot for four weeks, which is quite aggressive. We used our blood flow restriction protocol three times a week uh, on a Monday, Wednesday, and Friday in an open kinetic chain knee extension, along with contralateral leg strength training on a leg press to drive a neurological response um, among other exercises uh, in his program. We actually measured calf and thigh circumference pre and post four weeks of immobilization, and we actually were able to maintain 100% of muscle mass. So naturally, the, the muscle tone in his calf was completely gone, but the bulk was still there, which enabled us to progress quickly upon removal of the boot. We actually used um, a passive protocol as well. So this was a much higher occlusion of around 220 milligrams of mercury. And this would be just led down passively, not completing exercise, five minutes of occlusion followed by uh, three minutes unoccluded. And you would repeat this five times. So we did this on the off days on on a Tuesday, Thursday, just to break up some of the monotony. So this was a really successful example of of, of a rehab and, and we had no issues following this. Adam, to go back to a previous point, you mentioned that you're a big proponent of strength and conditioning for dancers, especially because of some of these overuse injuries and that strength and conditioning would serve these this dancer population really well of course with their hectic schedules as we saw with a day in the life of a soloist is trying to find these windows that you can have strength and conditioning with the dancers there's one principle in particular that you worked with and what you did with him was trying to plan out when he was having the shows and trying to find those windows of opportunity to have a strength and conditioning session with him So could you tell us a little bit about that, how you went about planning, what the sessions looked like throughout the season, what the progression was like, and and just a little bit more about um, strength and conditioning and working with that principle? Yeah, absolutely. Kind of like we mentioned before, strength and conditioning isn't compulsory for the dance. So the delivery is is highly variable from dancer to dancer. And and like we mentioned, the barriers that definitely include this show and, and rehearsal schedule and the high workload associated with it. Their, their day-to-day schedule can be extremely busy and extremely variable, which which makes it difficult for, for this consistent SNC. Based on that, we don't we don't have a, a consistent structured microcycle that works for, for all of these dancers. I guess the nice thing about being a principal and one of the, the highest ranking dancer in the Royal Ballet is you do have a little bit more control over your schedule. So you are able to probably engage a little bit more in terms of driving something that's a bit more systematic and a little bit more structured than some of the other lower ranking dancers um, because they just don't have this freedom. This example would be would be slightly different to the soloist because uh, due to the, the, the demands on him. But nonetheless, it's it's an interesting example, I think. So this chap, he was he was very engaged in the in the strength and conditioning process. And one of the first things we did was review his profiling data. And this is something that we conduct at the start of every season. So I'm just going to run you through this really quickly before before we get into um, everything else. This this just includes a series of tests that we as a healthcare team believe may identify any injury risk and allow for subsequent intervention based on based on the outcomes. The tests we look to conduct are knee to wall and a hip rotation range of motion. And this is simply due to the volume of squat and single leg squat type patterns that they do, as well as the requisite turnout that is such a big characteristic of ballet. 
And then within these both, we also look at any limb asymmetries in the range of motion. Then they, they run through some handheld dynamometry of the hip. So we look at hip abduction, hip external rotation, again, due to the demand of turnout and then looking at any limb asymmetries within this. Uh, after this, they go into some movement control tests, which are assessed in the frontal and sagittal plane. So this includes single leg calf rise, single leg squat and a single leg hop and stick in place both in parallel and, and in turnout. So just assessing any gross movement errors or compensations in these movement patterns that are quite specific to dance. Uh, we then look at bilateral and unilateral counter movement jumps on a force plate, looking at absolute jump height as well as any limb asymmetries. And then finally, we go into some capacity tests. So we look at a side plank, just looking at base, basic front capacity due to some of the injury data around the lower back. And then finally, and probably the most specific to dance and, and ballet is calf capacity, just looking at the muscular endurance of the calf due to the high demand of point for girls. So when they come right up onto their toes and demi point for the lads who are uh, um, so this is just essentially the top position of a calf raise. Following this, we reviewed his profiling data, which which overall was excellent, which um, which to be honest made it a little bit boring. <laughs> so his his lower limb range of motion and, and handheld dynamometry was equal. His movement quality was scored really well. He had some slight asymmetries during the counter movement jumps of roughly 12%, but nothing too crazy. Side planks were just shy of three minutes and symmetrical. And then his calf capacity was symmetrical, but could probably be improved. We, we then conducted some additional testing outside of this company-wide profiling. Uh, and we looked at a 1RM deadlift, front squat, back squat, overhead press, push press, as well as a five-minute maximal anaerobic speed test on the on the rowing machine. And these elements were mainly due to, to help accurately program percentages and measure for change. And I, and I say that because it's, it's probably worth mentioning at this point that it's really difficult to drive a performance-based program rather than an injury-based program. and Because we know we can make um, an athlete or a dancer in this case fitter or stronger or more powerful, but unlike sport, we don't have any objective performance outcomes. So a, a ballet isn't measured in points or goals. It's very subjective and it, and it is a performing art. Therefore, we, have, we haven't got any of these specific outcome measures to look at aside from a dancer's availability and whether they're injured or not. So, so this has to be sort of at the forefront of everything. So anyway, fo following this, we sat down and, and we outlined every show that he was going to be dancing in over the season. So this wasn't going to be every single one, so we had to remove all of the, uh, the additional shows. This gave me all of the information I needed to put together an annual overview of, of his balletic season with respect to important dates and, and heavy week. And then we also planned to conduct another testing session prior to the mid-season break in January. So we just wanted to reassess how he's getting on and then direct training for the remainder of the season. With all of this in mind, we, we planned um, a concurrent program that would take us up to the mid-season break. This decision was simply made because a, I believe a, a concurrent approach better suits the season of ballet simply because that there isn't one particular show you want to peak for. It's, you know, it's a continuous season. It lasts quite a long period of time. So he, he has to be ready to go um, you know, almost every week. Um, and then due to there being no significant deficits in his profiling, we, we focused quite generally on strength and power of the upper body um, and, and lower body. 
as well as looking at some maximum anaerobic speed intervals and then uh, some distal low extremity capacity as well. So this was prescribed over four training days. Two, con- two were conditioning based and, and two were strength and power based. And then some of the considerations we had to have around programming were around minimizing muscle mass uh, or, or muscle hypertrophy, as well as looking at recovery around the shows themselves. I mentioned um, minimizing hypertrophy because ballet has got an aesthetic aspect, and that is very important. So being really muscle bound isn't something that, that is desirable. So, so we have to bear that in mind when we're programming. And then, of course, just looking at the, the recovery was just to ensure that he was performing to the best of his ability. The, the programming was therefore intensity focused, typical reps and set schemes of less than five in compound lifts, such as the squat or deadlift. Intensity would be increased in, in a wave-like fashion over three-week blocks, followed by recovery week. And then during heavy show weeks, we would try to maintain intensity, but significantly reduce volume, whether this be through sets, reps, both, or or even frequency of sessions. And then similarly, we would reduce the volume of conditioning as well. So this could be modified to to act as low intensity recovery sessions where needed. In terms of the exercise selection, this was reasonably straightforward. Because this guy was so engaged, there, there wasn't much in the way of attaining buy-in. So I could talk about why I would think certain exercises would be uh, useful and, and he would generally be okay with that. So, you know, we would utilize classic triple extension compound lifts to target strength, force attenuation due to the demand of jumping as these were well suited to ballet. So, you know, just For example, this could be looking at like a a sumo deadlift or a squat-like pattern. Explosive strength exercises were variable, but I tried to keep a consistent thread of weightlifting derivatives, such as um, hang power cleans and and hang power snatches due to the... um, the, the position being so similar to that of, of jumping. And I was, I was always very anxious to add too much jumping volume as well, because we talked about it briefly before, just the volume of jumping that they have in their schedule already is so big that I don't want to add any more stress to that if that's already being stressed quite heavily. Although there might have been some instances where um, where we would program, program some jumps in, but we'd just be very careful about uh, when we would do that. You know, I'm a huge fan of uh, exercises like the push press as well, looking at upper body stuff, um, just purely because this is just so specific to some of the overhead lifts that the men have to do at the ballerinas. So this is a bit of a no-brainer for me. And then finally, calf capacity was targeted typically through, you know, whether it be higher rep bodyweight calf raises or lower rep heavy calf raises on a leg press machine or or seated calf raises that were also loaded. We ran him through this. This was really successful. And then in January, we, we conduct a testing session. Um, and here we looked at some slightly different elements. So conducted an RSI profile. Uh, looking at his stiffness properties. We retested his counter-movement jumps, both bilaterally and unilateral. We added in an isometric mid-thigh pull, and then we also looked at reassessing his five-minute maximum anaerobic speed on the rowing machine. And this gave us uh, a really good impression of the output that the training we had been doing had, so um, you know how he was progressing. But it also gave us a clearer insight into how to direct training for the remainder of the season. So we we used a bunch of calculations as well, such as um, you know the dynamic strength index to assess his dynamic strength potential. So this is just looking at peak force during an isometric mid thigh pull and the bilateral counter movement jumps, and it just 
helped direct whether we wanted to stick to a concurrent program, whether we wanted to go down more of a strength route, or whether we needed to go down more of a ballistic route. The RSI profile gave us a really good insight into his stiffness properties, and again, helped with the prescription if we were going to add in any additional drop jumps in terms of what box height we should use. And then finally, we looked at you know the, the limb symmetry index of his counter-movement jumps again, just to assess for any asymmetries. And this was both in, in displacement and force. So the general thought process that I had was if there were any asymmetries in displacement, but not in force, then we might chase a velocity-based outcome rather than a, a strength-based outcome if there were asymmetries in the force profile. And then finally, the maximum anaerobic speed test was, again, just reassessing cardiovascular fitness and giving us some more accurate data to then continue to prescribe his intervals from. So all of this information is is now being used to inform our programming for the remainder of the season. And, and he's progressing nicely. But yeah, it's, it's worth mentioning that, um, you know, this this isn't typical of all of the dancers because the schedules are very different. So we're very fortunate that um, he's got a lot more control over his schedule. So he's able to engage to, to this degree. Adam, I have a two-pronged question for you now. <laughs> uh, as, as you mentioned, A, what you just described isn't typical. What do you do with individuals that have a busier schedule? How do you go about trying to fit in strength and conditioning within their schedules? And then the second part to that question is, in terms of research, uh, there hasn't been a ton of research done into dancers in particular. So I know you mentioned there's a master's student currently there. What is he looking at and what are other things that should be looked at in terms of ballet in order to get a better sense of what exactly is going on with the dancers throughout a season? That's a, that's a really great question. In terms of other dancers, like you kind of alluded to, it it's very difficult. So I, I know their show schedule. So I have um, an Excel document where I've identified every single show that they have throughout a season. So I know what their, their schedule looks like in terms of a show demand. However, I don't know what their day-to-day -day rehearsals look like. So that is something that's really, really difficult to account for. And I'll probably touch on when I talk about the research element. But the way we, the way it worked, I mentioned that the S&C delivery is very variable. So some dancers might not be interested in having a really robust program. So they might just come in once a week or, or once every two weeks. And, and then we would, we would simply just try and get an understanding of, okay, what are they in? Which ballets are they in at the moment? Give me an insight into what your day is like today, what your day is like tomorrow so we don't overdo it um, and then we might just make some decisions looking over their profiling data from the start of the season to be like okay these are some of the key areas that this individual needed to work on at the start of the season so we'll just continue this thread throughout other dancers might engage a little bit more so they might be equally as busy but they you know they might find the time to conduct some additional testing so you have a little bit more information about that individual on a whole you know we might have looked at an rsi we might have looked at a, a mid-thigh iso pool we might have looked at his counter movement jumps again we might also have some historic injury data as well so for those guys we might they, they might sit down and be like okay you know look i would like to engage i don't know when i'm going to be available but i'm looking to do three sessions a week and we would sit down and we'd say okay based on this information let's program these three sessions Based on your show schedule, I would recommend you put them on these particular days. 
However, again, like I mentioned, it doesn't account for their rehearsal schedule. So that's down to there has to be some level of autonomy from the dancer themselves to ensure that they don't overdo it, that they are fresh for their shows, um, that they're not increasing their risk of injury by fatiguing themselves unnecessarily. But these dancers are, are generally pretty good at, at self-managing. So so yeah, that's that's kind of how we handle the other side of things that are less systematic in a way, but still trying to, you know, drive specific adaptations and, and give them a, a really robust strength and conditioning program that fits into to the demands of their day-to-day schedule. In terms of the research side of things, so Austin, our 0.5 MRES student, who's also the 0.5 SNC, he's currently looking into the risk of injury associated with the rate of loading upon landing from a jump. So he's going to be taking all the force data from the jumps that we complete with the company at Profiling um, and having a closer look at all of that and then looking at six months pre and post profiling to look at injury data and whether it relates to jumping type movement. Some of the other areas that that we're interested is um, looking into the demands and the quantification of a ballet because it's it's really difficult to even know what a ballet is made up of and 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 what this means in terms of physical qualities. So some of the things we're starting to look at are just starting to quantify some of the bigger classical ballets that keep coming back year on year. So this might be looking at ind- all the individual roles across the solos or the principles or the corps de ballet and looking at the volume of jumps that these individuals have to complete over a ballet, the volume of overhead lifts that they have to complete through a ballet, or just the duration of time dancing on stage for these different roles as well. So again, that's just looking at the the shows themselves, but we also want to investigate the rehearsal period and the day-to-day going. So the, the way we want to start um, broaching that is looking at um, training loads, trying to get durations of the rehearsal periods throughout a day, as well as a as a rate of perceived exertion. So you know the classic training training load quantification, which will then enable us to you know we, we can do all sorts of things with this data, whether it just look at how much they're doing, but also look at applying acute chronic workload, start looking at seeing whether there's any um, massive peaks or spikes in their workload associated with busy times around more ballets or whether it's when you know there's large rehearsal periods where they're rehearsing maybe up to four ballets at one time so then we can start to better speak to the artistic staff and say hey you know can we potentially look at planning out this season so this doesn't continue to happen? And then also looking at this more objectively in terms of bringing in uh, indoor GPS systems to start looking at distances traveled, looking at jump volume throughout the course of a day. But again, there's obviously complications with this in terms of setting up indoor GPS systems, just simply placing it on the dancer because obviously dance is so aesthetic. If you have a GPS system on their back where they now look like they've uh, in a kyphotic position that's probably not going to sit too well with the artistic staff but then also the the cost of the units as well so this is probably more of a longer term project but definitely something we're looking to pursue and then and then finally you know we have Professor Matt Wyan from Wolverhampton University conducting some research on our students so he's looking at vitamin D supplementation due to uh, the indoor nature of ballet training um, and he's looking at this in terms of the vitamin D levels, naturally, 
um, but also uh, its effect on strength and power. And then, of course, you know, just trying to promote this information to the wider dance community and and share this so it um, so it's uh, more attainable by other dance companies and other dance schools. Adam, this next section is a section that I added a couple of episodes ago because, quite frankly, I got tired of asking, you know, what would be recommendations for younger strength and conditioning coaches? So I decided to go about it a different way. <laughs> okay. The way I like to describe this section is basically getting to know Adam Matusi. First question, what is your favorite strength and conditioning book? So this is a good question. And I think it's a bit daunting, really, because I don't really have a favorite strength and conditioning book. I, I have a bunch of strength and conditioning books, but I, I don't typically read them cover to cover. I, I, I use them as resources. However, I have just ordered uh, Strength Training and Coordination by Franz Bosch because of all the hype around it. So so that could change. In the meantime, I'm going to have to give you a, a favorite article, which might be a bit of a cop out, but uh, that's all I've got. This particular article is called um, Spinal Exercise Prescription in Sport, Classifying Physical Training and Rehabilitation by in- Intention and Outcome. And it was written by Spencer, Wolf, and Rushton and was published in the Journal of Athletic Trainers. So the, the reason I really like this article is it, is it looks at trunk training and, and it offers a really logical and systematic framework in which to progress it, whether it be in an injury or performance context. And I think it's something that probably a lot of SNC coaches have thought of, but I've never seen it written out quite so succinctly. Um, so, so yeah, I really enjoyed it. And, uh, and I think it's a good read for anyone out there. I'm not going to let you cop out on this next question. <laughs> So your your favorite um, either nonfiction or fictional book? So this would be a book called Bounce, The Myth of Talent and the Power of Practice by Matthew Saeed. This was actually a book I read quite a long time ago. So it's probably due to, to have another read because I've forgotten something of it. <laughs> but th- I remember this just being a, a really interesting book and looking into practice and the, the power of practice. And, and it really sparked an interest for me into skill acquisition and, and motor learning, which continued all the way through my, my education, really, in terms of my undergraduate degree program. I was really interested in, you know, coaching science and, and that side of things. I'm going to throw you a curveball. What are your favorite three exercises to include within your training? Oh my God. Uh, well, as, as a weightlifter, this one's going to be pretty straightforward. It's going to be a snatch, a clean and jerk and a squat. I, I, I thought so. I thought so with your weightlifting background. And now to end on a more serious note, what is the best piece of advice ever given to you by a professor or mentor and why was it so impactful? Yeah, that's, that is a really great question. I would say quite difficult to actually think of this, but then when I thought of it, it was, it was very obvious. One of, uh, one of my lecturers, my previous lecturers, John Goodwin, he actually developed the course in strength and conditioning science at St. Mary's University. He once said to, to us, our cohort, we shouldn't judge other coaches' programs or decisions based on a snapshot of something you see, just because it may not immediately align with with our philosophies. And this is just simply because you don't know barriers that that individual uh, strength and conditioning coach may be up against. You don't know the demands of um, that particular athlete or anything around attaining buy-in. You really don't have a full picture of that athlete and of the situation around that athlete. So you shouldn't jump to conclusions and you, you shouldn't judge unnecessarily. Instead, it would be 
better to 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 speak with that snc coach and and ask him hey you know why why are you approaching your training in this way or why are you doing that in this way to get a better understanding i think that's a fantastic piece of advice especially now during the age of social media where many individuals are connected with one another and sharing some of their training sessions yeah it's really tough to get a, a context of why that's specifically happening and i see it all the time people writing nasty comments on people's videos and just jumping down their throat without even knowing what that brief snapshot is even showing. Exactly. Yeah, that's that's exactly my thought process. Adam, so if anybody wants to reach out to you regarding anything that you said in the podcast, if they have any questions or comments, what's the best way they can do so? Absolutely. I'd say I'm, I'm somewhat active on Twitter. So feel free to uh, follow me. I generally follow you back if you're in the SNC community. <clears throat> my handle's at Adam Machusi, so A-D-A-M-M-A-T-T-I-U-S-S-I. Drop me a line uh, and and I'll get back to you. Sounds fantastic, and I'll make sure to include your contact information within the show notes that's found on my website, historicperformance.net. Perfect. So, Adam, thank you so much for taking the time on a Sunday afternoon to come on the podcast no problem and to share a little bit about what you're doing at the royal ballet company and school i greatly appreciate it absolutely it's been my pleasure thank you for inviting me on james thanks again for listening to another episode of the historic performance podcast if you want to learn more about historic performance or listen to any previous episodes make sure to go to our website historicperformance.net you can also find us on twitter at historic perform And don't forget to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're at it, we'd appreciate it if you left either a rating or review. Thank you, and I'll see you guys next week.